<clears throat> we take up our reading <clears throat> this afternoon <clears throat> at the passing now of yet another one of these wonderful pilgrims. Bunyan says, when days had many of them passed away, Mr. Despondency was sent for. But before I read that, I did want to read, uh, I wanted to really, before we take up Mr. Despondency, there was some tremendous uh, material here that I wanted to share with you uh, where uh, White in his uh, comments is uh, commenting on uh, the passing of Mr. Feebleman, which we read and finished on last week, Mr. Feebleman. And uh, I had left off and was not going to share this with you, but then uh, I know that most of you don't have, or if you do have, uh, these other commentaries that I have on uh, Pilgrim's Progress, you, with your busy lives, just, you don't have the time to read all of that. <clears throat> and uh, so I try to choose that which is, is truly worthy, that, that I don't want you to, to be without. And uh, this reading of Alexander White uh, concerning, in the context of the passing of Mr. Feebleman, is certainly... Uh, a worthy reading and uh, I wanted you to hear what he had to say and I'm breaking in of course to his lecture and only reading a part of it he said among all the devout and beautiful fables of the dispensation of paganism now you'll find out that's his description and I don't know who he's quoting. He has it put in quotes. Uh, he's referring that to uh, the uh, the Greeks, the period of the Greeks, and uh, the many fables that they told. And uh, I came across this this fable of blind Tiresias. Is that how it's properly pronounced, Tiresias? And I ask, uh, I ask my faithful research assistant to uh, to look into this fable for me. My my teller teller of stories, the sage of Raymond uh, Tinkerbell. <laughs> I ask her to look into that fable for me. And uh, uh, be prepared to, because what White has to say here is so valuable, such a good lesson that he brings to us, that I wanted you to have it. But in order to have it, of course, I think White is assuming that his hearers apparently knew this fable and were familiar with it. <clears throat> I was not. <clears throat> of course, my wife was, and her students were. <clears throat> but I was not. And uh, so I just wanted to make sure we all had the fable before we uh, 
before we read what White had to say about it, could you tell the fable for us just briefly? The staff that Athena gave him. So, now that is one version of it. There are three that I know of versions of how this Tiresias became blind, but whatever the case about that, the general story is there, and now you know the story. So, Mr. White says, among all the devout and beautiful fables of the dispensation of paganism, there is nothing finer than the fable of blind Tiresias and his staff. By some sad calamity, this old prophet had lost the sight of his eyes. And to compensate their servant, their servant for that great loss, the gods endowed him with a staff with eyes. As Aaron's rod budded before the testimony and bloomed blossoms and yielded almonds, so Tiresias's budded eyes and divine eyes for the blind prophet's guidance and direction. Tiresias had, had but to take his heaven-given staff in his hand when straightway such a divinity entered into the staff that it both saw for him with divine eyes and heard for him with divine ears and then led him and directed him and never once in all his after journeys let him fall off the right way. All other men about him, prophets and priests both, often lost their way. But Tiresias, after his blindness, never till Tiresias and his staff became a proverb and a parable in the land. And just such a staff, just such a crutch, just such a pair of crutches were the crutches of our own so homely Mr. Ready to Halt. With all their lusty limbs, all the other pilgrims often stumbled and went out of their way till they had to be helped up, led back, and their faces set right again. But last as, but last as Mr. Ready Halt always came in in the procession, 
behind even the women and the children as his crutches always kept him. You will seek in vain for the dot of these crutches on any bypath or on any wrong road. No. The fact is, if you wish to go to the same city and are afraid you will lose your way, as evangelist said, do you see yon shining light? So I would say to you tonight, do you see these crutch marks on the road? Well, keep your feet in the prints of these crutches. And as sure as you do, that they will lead you straight to a chariot and horses which again will carry you inside the city gates. For Mr. Ready to Halt's crutches have not only eyes like Tiresias' staff, but they have ears also, and hands, and feet. A lamp also burns on these crutches, wine and oil distilled from their wonderful wood. Happy blindness that brings such a staff. Happy exchange. Eyes full of earth and sin swapped for eyes full of heaven and holiness. Mr. Ready to Halt went on his crutches, but on his crutches, he never went out of the way. And then White says, who whom thou lovest and followed, though upon crutches, expects thee at his table the next day after Easter. You remember those words from Bunyan. Take comfort, cripples. Had it been said that the king so expects great heart or steadfast or valiant for truth, that would have been after the manner of the kings of this world. But to insist on having Mr. Ready to halt beside him by such and such a day, to send such a post to a pilgrim who has not a single sound bone in all his body, to a sinner without a single trustworthy grace in all his heart, to a poor and simple believer who has nothing in his hand but one of God's own promises, who is a king like unto this king? Surely King David was never a better type of Christ than when he said to Mephibosheth, lame in both his feet from his nurse's arms, Fear not, Mephibosheth, for I will surely show thee kindness. And thou shalt eat bread at my table continually. And Mephibosheth shall always be our spokesman when he bows himself and says in return, What is thy servant that thou shouldst look upon such a dead dog as I am? Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful testimony. In the passing, dear old 
ready to halt. I didn't want you to lose that. I wanted you to have that reading. Thank you, Tinker, for telling us the story. Uh, so we take up again today. When days had many of them passed away, Mr. Despondency was sent for. For a post was come and brought this message to him. Trembling man, these are to summon thee to be ready with the king by the next Lord's day to shout for joy for thy deliverance from all thy doubts. And said the messenger, that messenger is true. That message is true. Take this for a proof. So he gave him a grasshopper to be a burden unto him. Now, that's of course a reference as you have it probably in your book to Ecclesiastes 12 and verse 5. This grasshopper was given him to be a burden to him as a token, as a proof that this message was in fact the truth and that it was a true message and he was the true messenger and it was from the Lord. He gave him this grasshopper to be a burden of proof, which was just an evidence, of course, of the scriptures, the, the truth of the scriptures. Now, Mr. Despondency's daughter, whose name was Much Afraid, said when she heard what was done that she would go with her father. Then Mr. Despondency said to his friend, Myself and my daughter, you know what we have been and how troublesome we have behaved ourselves in every company. My will and my daughter's is that our despondence and slavish fears be by no man ever received. Now, of course, you think of a will when a person is dying. They're, they leave in their will the things they want to give to people, and it's named the person they'll give it to. When Mr. Despondency goes to see, set his will, he's very clear that all he's ever had was fear, despondency, slavish fears. And so it is his will, he writes in his will, that these things would be by no man ever received from the day of our departure forever. In other words, in his will, he's saying, I leave nothing and I certainly won't, do not want to leave these fears and despondencies to any, ever, forever. For I know that after my death, they will offer themselves to others. For to be plain with you, they are ghosts which we entertained when we first began to be pilgrims and could never shake them off after. And they will walk about 
and seek entertainment of the pilgrims, but for our sakes, shut the doors upon them. Do not allow these things to come in to your life. Fears, despondencies, doubtings. He says, please, please, for our sake, do not, do not, do not give countenance to these things. Ivamy said, Pilgrims, mind this. It is as much your duty to strive in the strength of the Lord against unreasonable doubts and slavish fears as it is against sin. Nay, they are not in their own nature the worst of sin. Are they, are they not in their own nature the worst of sins as they spring from infidelity? Dishonor God's precious truth, his glorious grace, and his everlasting salvation. Never, never, never then cherish or give way to them, but resist them and shut the door of your heart against them. Do not allow them. Simply do not allow them. Shut the doors upon them, Mr. Despondency said. When the time was come for them to depart, they went up to the brink of the river. The last words of Mr. Despondency were, Farewell, night. Welcome, day. His daughter went through the river singing. <laughs> but none could understand what she said. Hallelujah. She's speaking a heavenly language now. She's speaking a heavenly language now. Oh, she's singing. Nobody could understand what she was saying. Singing in the river now. Singing in the river. The daughter of Mr. Despondency. Much afraid, singing in the river. McGuire said, Born of the same blood, characterized by the same spirit, bound once in the same bondage of Doubting Castle, in death they were not divided. And in putting off this mortality in the fleshly raiment, they put off also their doubts and fears. The seeds of doubt had lingered to the very last. The iron of despair had entered into their soul and the marks of their bondage were never wholly effaced until they were clothed upon with immortality. To those doubting ones, Earth was a night season of gloom and darkness, and in the borderland they saw the dawn of the day. And when the summons comes, they are glad to bid farewell to the night that's past, and to welcome with joy and singing the eternal day whose sunrise shall know no sunset. She is 
very gladly singing. <laughs> Overton, in his lectures, said, Oh, my brethren, if people are only true of heart, if they are all truly penitent for their sins and rest by simple faith on Christ to save them, however grievous may be their infirmities, however slow and uncomfortable may have been their progress, it shall surely be well with them in the end. The king of the celestial city is a merciful king. If you humbly put your trust in him and love him in sincerity, why should you ever yield to despondency? Have you not a compassionate high priest who's touched with the feelings of your infirmity? Does he not know your frame? Does he not consider that you're dust? Oh, remember in all your straits and trials, the words of the hymn, Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, love, and power. He is able, he is willing, doubt no more. However feeble may be your mind, however sad at times may be your despondency, however much you may sometimes be afraid, only lean upon his almighty arm, plead his unchanging promise, and expect his continual help, and you shall not be disappointed. His grace will be sufficient for you. His strength will be perfected in your weakness. However painfully you may be exercised by the way, only cleave unto him with a perfect heart. And when your course is finished, perhaps while, perhaps while it is finishing, he will show you that having loved his own which are in the world, he loves them to the end. In a little while, he will send to fetch you, that where he is, there you may be also. The messenger by which he sends to summon you may at the first startle you. When the post that has traveled from the invisible world shall step at your dwelling, stop at your dwelling, and blow his horn and knock at your door, a solemn sensation may pervade your mind. And when he produces the order which cannot be reversed and delivers the token which cannot be disputed, when sight and memory and understanding shall all grow dim, when heart and flesh shall fail and the slightest sound or the slightest touch shall be more than you can bear. That's the reason for the reference to the grasshopper. If you read that prophecy, he's making the point that even a grasshopper become a terror to them. He says when you reach that point where the slightest sound or the lightest touch may be more than you can bear, then you shall begin to understand the, in the unspeakable advantage of having such a Savior for a friend to you at such a time then you have nothing to do but to leave all your feebleness, leave all your doubtfulness, leave all your fearfulness behind. 
And oh, if the conqueror of death and hell meet with you in the gloomy veil and especially manifest himself to you when you're passing through the waters, will not faith and patience then hold out to the end? Will not your last words be farewell night, <laughs> welcome day? Or may you not even by privilege be privileged after all your terrible fears to pass into eternity singing. But with all singing, what none who remain on this side of the river are able to comprehend because you have got a glimpse of the glory that's to be revealed and you are beginning the language of paradise because you've heard unspeakable words which it is not lawful for man to utter. It's a beautiful promise. A beautiful, beautiful promise. Curbane, in his commentary, says this, When many, when days many of them had passed since my feeble mind had gone across the bridgeless stream, Mr. Despondency himself was sent for. As with feeble mind, his term of notice was brief by next Lord's day. The trembling man was to be ready with his king to shout for joy. The supreme deliverance of which the earlier was only the symbol and awoke little in him of joyous utterance. And now for the first time in the history, the old man finds his voice. He speaks of his daughter as well as for himself. Since he had said, said when she heard what was done that she would go with her father. This man of a single speech, a single speech, yet manages at last to speak so well that we must report him fully. Myself and my daughter, he says, you know what we have been and how troublesome we behaved ourselves in every company. My will and my daughter's is that our despondent Slavish fears be no more ever received from the day of our departure forever. For I know that after my death, they will offer themselves to others. For it is plain with you, they are ghosts. And the which we entertained when we first began our pilgrimage. Kerbane says, indeed, this profounder self of his, this profounder self of his, now rallying its manhood around the thought that those infesting ghosts were under notice to quit, is a self which we are able to regard with some admiration. In his tone, there is not the revengeful contempt which feeble mind indulged. Still less is there the unregretting gratitude 
which inspired the last will of ready to halt when he when now the spell is broken in the near view of the next Lord's day. But there is a frank tenderness of self-reproach, a gentle decisiveness of conviction that he and his daughter have been held down unrighteously by shadowy tyrants and a liveliness of disinterested concern lest those same ghostly vermin should gain quarter in the breast of any other pilgrim which must have touched cords of earnest forgiveness in the hearts of his brethren. His only other words perpetuate the happy effect of these. He's glancing back into the past that he may gaze forward and more triumphantly into the future. Farewell night, welcome day. At his side, the daughter who danced in celebration of the lesser deliverance now sings as she enters the greater deliverance, going with Lord's Day worship on her lips into the day most calm and bright. But when at length we thus hear her uttering her heart once for all, her tuneful accents have so mingled themselves with things unearthly that they fall unintelligibly upon the ears of the lingering listeners. I wondered when I read that, I've heard a number of times people say that they were there at the end of a saint's journey and it never crossed my mind before. I've heard people say I they were talking, but I I couldn't make it out. I just couldn't make out what they were saying. <laughs> I just assume assumed that always meant they were their voice was just so weak and it was just unintelligible. But I wonder now maybe that they were talking very clearly. We just didn't understand. Speaking another language, already crossing over. Hmm, what a wonderful thought. The last words Bunyan says of Mr. Despondency were farewell night, welcome day. His daughter went through the river singing, but none could understand what she said. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. It was his prayer. In fact, he put it in his will that no one coming after him should receive his fears and despondency. That was a good will. <laughs> that was a good will. How many of us in dying will wish it were so that we could leave it in our will that our children not follow us, not follow our example, not do what we did? That was his will. Any comments, testimonies, questions on the passing? of Mr. Despondency and his dear, dear daughter, much afraid.